Welcome to Idle Chatter, brought to you by the Machinery Digest, where steel and soil meet. A weekly podcast by a New Jersey farmer to all farmers and ranchers across this great nation. And yes, there are farms in New Jersey. Regardless of the crop you grow or the livestock you raise, we all have one thing in common. Agriculture runs on passion, sweat, tears, and machinery, and that is why the Machinery Digest exists, a no-nonsense, grease-under-your-fingernails educational website. It was created to provide a transfer of knowledge so that you can maintain, service, and most importantly, understand today's complex farm equipment. My name is Ray Bohax, and I farm too. It is time now to get under the sheet metal. Hello and welcome to Idle Chatter. I'm the hot rod farmer Ray Bohax and I'm excited about being here with you today and hopefully uh, you'll enjoy today's show. It's uh, Today is August uh, 7th. It's hard to believe that, that the year is flying by so quickly and we'll be getting ready to harvest our sweet corn crop probably in another week to 10 days. Uh, we got in, I got in a little bit late because of the weather, like most guys in the country, but historically we usually just come due about this time of year. It's a 88-day sweet corn, and unlike most row crop farmers, I do multiple plantings. I know row crop guys do multiple plantings because if they run a lot of acres, by the time they get into those fields, it's a few days later. But we actually do about 10 different plantings, and they're four to five days apart because we do sell fresh market sweet corn, and I cannot have it all come due at the same time. So it's a uh, a long cycle, and ultimately, during that time, you're doing 10 different plantings over the course of 40 or 50 days. The weather conditions change for each planting, so it's uh, really an interesting. It's a different set of obstacles than, than a row crop, where you're planting a few thousand acres in a week or so, and everything more or less seems the same weather conditions and what have you. But excited about harvest, the blessing of harvest, and, uh, you know, we... Uh, Believe it or not, we hand harvest. We pick by hand and uh, bring it out of the field the old-fashioned way. So uh, it works out very well, and it's a great time. I enjoy it, and uh, we have a good time in the field, and we're blessed to, uh, to be able to do this and to uh, have the health and the strength to be able to do it. But, you know, on our farm, we've only raised... Uh, let me count. We've raised sweet corn, obviously, and over the years we've raised tomatoes, peppers... Uh, Hubbard squash, some Christmas trees, and uh, cucumbers, cucumbers, and maybe something else along the way. But we're predominantly a sweet corn operation, and this year we only have sweet corn, uh, nothing else. So my exposure to different plant diseases or conditions or problems are is is based upon only those crops. I've never raised soybeans, I've never raised wheat, I've never raised canola or any pulse crops, what have you. So I do know that the soybean uh, guys do suffer from a uh, disease called sudden death syndrome, SDS. And from what I recall, I think that was first discovered in Arkansas around 1971 or 72, and then uh, 
spread across the United States. So I know that SDS is a big problem, and uh, and thankfully I don't have to deal with that with sweet corn, but I deal with other issues. But but anyway, why I'm telling you this is that when somebody hears the term SDS, they think of you know, a farmer thinks of soybean sudden death syndrome. But what I want, what our podcast today is going to be about, is that SDS is not just for soybeans. And what could happen is that your battery, your storage battery in any one of your vehicles or piece of equipment can suffer from SDS, Sudden Death Syndrome. And that's very common, and I'm going to explain that in today's podcast. The other thing I wanted to touch on is that we have two letters here to the um, special delivery segment, which I will do at the end of the show and close with that. I have one from a gentleman from Montana with an older Ford pickup truck that died on his ranch and he cannot get started about six months ago and I will read that letter to you later on and then I have one from Bruce in Mississippi uh, has been having some problems with an engine on a center pivot irrigation pump so that will be later on but what I'd like to do is I'd like to tell you a little story first I love stories, so anybody who listens to this podcast will know that most times I'll try to start with a story and uh, probably won't end with a story, even though I would like to, but I want to be merciful to you, to spare you from my stories. But my uh, best friend, Gene Worst, who uh, now lives in Las Vegas for a number of years, he moved away from the East Coast, he was an in-town kid, and actually the first stick shift vehicle he ever drove we taught him how to drive on the farm here was an old 1964 Ford F100 pickup truck and it had a a 292 engine with a a three speed it was originally three in a tree and we had my father bought the truck I think for a hundred dollars so even back then you can imagine what it looked like but uh, it ran great had a hand choke and somebody converted to a three speed on the floor from the uh, column shifter and it had a hearse shifter in my buddy Gene drove that truck drove a stick shift for the first time uh, here on the farm and he learned how to drive that and then he moved to Las Vegas and he's a real good uh, real good guy and a very very uh, enthusiastic uh, muscle car collector and then what had happened was that he always wanted to get in his collection a 1989 Pontiac Firebird Turbo Trans Am and for you gearheads out there listening to the hot rod farmer that was a car that they only made 1500 of and what it was is it was a pontiac trans am gta but it, it was it did not have the tune port motor in it it had a modified version of a buick grand national turbo v6 motor the only difference was it had a different set of cylinder heads because of the valve cover bolts but anyway so they only made 1500 of them and they're a very desirable car and they were they actually very very nice package very well balanced because the v6 was lighter than the v8 up front so they handled better and they went like stink uh you could put just do a little bit of work to them and they were 500 horsepower motor but anyway Gene found this Turbo Trans Am in Howell, Michigan, a number of years back, about 10, 12 years ago, that only had, I think, 600 miles on it, and he wanted to buy it. So he asked me whether I would go look at it, and he sent me a check, a certified check to the person's uh, name, and he said, take the check with you and go out, and if you think the car is good, give him the check, and I'll arrange to have it shipped out to Nevada, and if it's not good, you know, leave the check in the trunk and drive home. So that's what I ended up doing. 
It was a beautiful day just before Thanksgiving weekend. And it was actually quite warm that day. It was quite nice. And I was getting near the exit off of I-96 in Michigan to go to Howell. And there was a rest area just before, about a mile before the exit. So I wanted to stop in the rest area and and just uh, clean up and use the facilities because I knew I was going to someone's house and I did not want to be disrespectful and ask to use their their bathroom or anything once I got to the house. So I pulled into the rest area. There was no one there. I shut my car off. It was my Escort at the time, my 1998 Ford Escort at the time, and uh, went in and came back out and went to go start the car a few minutes later and completely dead nothing no dome light nothing completely dead it was as if someone stole the battery out of the car so i said well, this is so i i said to myself all right well i think i know i'm 99.9 percent sure i know what this is sudden death syndrome of a battery so that's what i'm going to explain to you so to continue the story I opened the hood just to make sure that the connection didn't fall off. I was 99% sure it didn't, but I just needed to put eyeballs on everything, and I saw everything was tight, and I knew what had happened was that the battery broke inside. So I knew I needed to call a tow truck. So subsequently, I called a tow truck, and the, the guy came very expeditiously, a flatbed. I wanted a flatbed. I don't like to tow cars behind a, on a wheel lift because they get damaged. So I... Um, asked them to bring me to a Ford dealer because I wanted a Ford battery. I wanted the original equipment battery. So he brought me to the Ford dealer and I came in and I told him what had happened. But you know, in a situation like that, you gotta, you have to handle it with a, with a, with a little bit of uh, finesse because you don't want to come in like a bull into a china shop and telling the guy what's wrong with the car. Lots of times you'll get mechanics or technicians, whether it's in the car dealership or a tractor dealership, what have you, and they get their dander up if you're telling them uh, what's wrong with the car, what to fix it. So I told him what happened and I said to him I was on a business trip, which I was, it was monkey business, but I was on a business trip and they said they could get in right away and they were, they were very, 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 very accommodating, very nice. And so they jump started the car with a jumper box and they brought it in and I'm looking through the window from the in, into the service shop and I see the mechanic and this is about 15 years ago so he was probably my age now so I was about 14 15 years younger than he was and I see him putting the jumper box on he's got some kind of computerized thing there and he's starting the car he's running it he has a dazed look on his face and then he uh, shuts the car off and it doesn't start and he puts a jumper box on it so I told the, the girl at the service desk a white lie. And I said to her, geez, I forgot something in my car. Would I be able to go out to the shop and get it? She said, oh, sure. But I really wanted to be able to talk to the mechanic. So I wanted to talk to him because I knew what was wrong with it. And I saw which way this was going. And I would have been there. Forget about it. I would have been there. I'd still be sitting there. And I would have had a whole car rebuilt. So anyway... So I came up to him, I, you know, I thanked him for his, his efforts, and I gave him a couple of dollars for a cup of coffee. He goes, working man to working man, that's always appreciated. And I certainly know that, and I always believe and was taught that, you know, you respect people. And and to strangers, I mean, in a situation like that, by giving a man a couple of dollars for a cup of coffee, it shows you respect for him. And uh, so I said to him, look... I'm not trying to be I'm not trying to be a wise guy or anything but I'm in the industry and uh, I know what's wrong with the car the battery broke inside so please do me a favor 
go to your parts department and get me the best battery if you have it the tested tough max motorcraft battery and put the battery in the car i said it's the original battery i said but on the car is 200,000 miles it's the original battery i said and if it is not the battery and i'm wrong i'm buying the battery i'm not going to stick you for it i'm not going to say well hey you've misdiagnosed it's my diagnosis so he was very accommodating and i think because he was actually stymied on that and didn't really know what was wrong with the car or what to do with that particular point so I think I sensed a little bit of relief uh, in his face so he did he went and he got the battery he installed the battery and lo and behold the car starts so I said to him okay he said can you please take that computerized tester away and do you have a regular voltmeter whether it's digital or analog and uh, he said yes I said may I have it please so I so it was a digital meter I put it on the 20 volt scale and I put it across the battery and it's charging 14.72 volts I said beautiful it's all done it's fixed I said make up the bill thank you very much and he looked at me as if he saw a flying saucer and I said to him it was very simple what had happened and is the battery broke inside and he said he'd never heard of that and I said yes it's a very common occurrence and I explained to him what I'm going to explain to you now a battery in the car or, or you know we use the term automotive style battery because that's really where it originated from so this is this holds true for a battery in a combine in a UTV on an irrigation pump what have you it's an automotive style wet cell battery it's actually called called a proper name is a flooded acid battery but we call it a wet cell and what happens in a battery like that there are there are cells and it's it's a voltaic cell and Alex Alex I think it's Alexandro Alexandro Volta actually invented it so it's a voltaic cell and it's a lead acid battery it's a combination of leads and different materials in an acid bath which we would call electrolyte it's acid in some water but we call it electrolyte and that produces voltage the chemical reaction between the dissimilar metals and the acid produces voltage and what happens is that each volt each cell voltaic cell can produce a maximum of 2.2 volts so if you have a 12 volt battery you would have six sets of cells an older piece of equipment with a six volt battery had three sets of cells and that's why the older batteries had three filler caps and the um, 12 volt batteries had six filler caps because there was uh, six different cells so actually if you do six point times 2.2 is that that battery has the potential energy of 13.2 volts even though it's rated a 12 volt battery so each cell is 2.2 volts when it is fresh and when it is new and when it is fully charged now we have to understand that there's basically two types of circuits for this discussion that we could uh, be concerned with and one is a series circuit and one is a parallel circuit internally in the battery the uh, and it's called properly a storage battery we call it a battery but it's actual engineering term is a flooded acid storage battery because it's storing electricity is that those cells are tied together with something called a bus bar b-u-s-b-a-r it's a compound word and a bus bar ties different circuits together and the, internally those cells are wired up in series so the positive goes to the negative and then the next negative goes to the next positive versus parallel where it would be where you would have positive to positive and negative to negative now 
in simplistic terms, if you wire multiple cells in series you add the voltage together so two point so let's say two volts for easy arithmetic two 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 times six is twelve volts if you wire a cell in parallel you do not increase the voltage but you increase its amperage output and that is why when you jump start a piece of equipment you're going positive to positive negative to negative you're wiring it in parallel you're not wiring it in series when you put a set of jumper cables on so you're increasing the amperage output of or going into the starter by having the the um, the slave battery hooked up to it from the jump start vehicle or jump start piece of equipment and then you are but you're, it's still remaining at 12 volts so internally in a battery and whether it's a, a wet wet flooded cell whether it's a um, AGM absorbent glass mat which is a new style of battery that those cells are all wired in series and there's a bus bar connecting these cells now what happens when I say the battery broke inside is that that bus bar broke. That bus bar gets deteriorated over time and is still making contact and at one particular point the bus bar will break. Now let's go back to my scenario because it could happen to you on the farm, it could happen to you going to town, it could happen on any piece of equipment. Sudden death syndrome of a battery. So what happens is that over time, that bus bar from being in the flooded acid battery starts to deteriorate. So I was riding to Michigan. I was driving. Everything was beautiful. I had the window down. I'm singing, listening to the radio. You don't want to hear my singing. Trust me. It's a good thing I was going 65 miles an hour. But anyway, and everything is fine. At that, and I, do, I cannot tell you when that battery broke it i did not stop for about 200 miles it i could it could have broke broken 200 miles ago or it could have broken right as i went into the rest area i could have hit a slight bump in the pavement and the bus bar was so thin that it broke right or it could have broken 200 miles ago now you may be saying well if it broke 200 if it broke 200 miles ago how did you get there well it's very simple because the car was the engine was running off the alternator it was daytime I didn't have, it was a nice day, I didn't have much of electrical load, the only electrical load I had was the radio, and also uh, uh, to run the engine, which would be the ignition demand and the fuel injection, so there wasn't much load on it, and the car was going down the road, and it was actually running off the battery, because if it broke 200 miles before, in in all for all intents and purposes there was no battery in there, because it was like having no battery and just the two cables not even connected together. So I do not know when it broke and what would happen is that you could go out in the field and you could hit a bump and that bus bar could break because the battery is older and the, it is completely dead. If you were to put a voltmeter across that battery, you would have zero voltage. It's like it did not exist. So what will happen over time is that bus bar will become thin and there's no real way for you to tell that in practical terms. Um, the only way that you would really want to to quantify whether that bus bar is getting thin is b through age of the battery. That battery was six years old, and ironically, I was going to replace it just that next week because I uh, it was six years old already, and I said, well, I don't like to go more than five or six years with a battery. So I was ready to replace it next week, but I ended up having to replace it in Michigan. Now, to get back to the dealership story, 
and this is by no means being pompous or tooting my own horn or what have you if i did not was not able to accurately diagnose that i mean that that mechanic through uh i was saying respectfully through ignorance through a lack of knowledge not stupid not any not any no, no through through no malice but through ignorance probably would have sold me an alternator and uh then he would have probably put a battery in it and then the car would have ran and i could very well have been stuck there for a day or two if he didn't could not get the alternator or what have you so it's very important to understand that sudden death syndrome could happen to a battery now if you had a piece of equipment that was always uh the battery was being deep cycled and what deep cycle means is that you take it from fully charged to almost dead and then recharge it. So let's say you had a uh, piece of equipment that had a had a um, a uh, a short or circuit that's staying powered up and it's killing the battery and you keep killing it and then charging it back up again, that you would put more wear on that bus bar and that bus bar would become thinner sooner. But for all uh, practical purposes, we would have to assume that by five or six years old, that bus bar will not uh, be worth much. Now, some people say that you could put a load test on the battery and you could determine whether the bus bar is going thin and uh, getting thin. And that is, I guess, I guess in theory, you know, there's two different things. There's, the, there's, there's theoretical and empirical. Theoretical means that it's you know all blackboard theory equations and the way life should work and the way things should work and empirical basically is you know the facts of life you know empirically you know I know if I punch somebody in the nose they're gonna punch me back in theory they could you could say well they don't really have to punch you back they could be a pacifist or what have you so the empirical is what the what happens in the real world or real world experience and the theoretical is what the textbook says. And in theory, if you were to be able to have a, a brand new battery of that rating, of that amperage rating, and you were to load test it, then you'd be able to go and say, okay, well, this, this battery load tests at this value, and then this old one load tests a little bit less because that, and it could be possibly because that bus bar is getting thinner, but uh, it could also be due to the cells being sulfated uh, from use and from time. So now I would like to recap this. On a automotive style battery in any piece of equipment, there are six cells, in theory 2.2 volts each that are tied together with a bus bar and they're wired in series. Now that bus bar, if it is intact, will allow all the potential energy from those cells to go out the battery terminals. Once that bus bar breaks, SDS, sudden death syndrome, no way for you to really foretell when that is going to happen, just like with me, other than time, is that that battery will go completely open inside. An open circuit means that there's no connection and it will be completely dead. This is not to be confused with a battery that gets weak in cold weather or gets very weak in hot weather. A battery that gets weak in cold weather or very weak in hot weather because batteries do not like temperature extremes. They like about 68, 70 degrees, and that's it. When it gets to be colder than that, they don't really like it. And when it gets to be hotter than that, they don't really like it, and their output ramps off. But usually a battery that is good in, in temperate weather and then cranks slowly 
in very hot weather and or very cold weather then that is usually the cells are becoming sulfated and or they be, the, the plates are becoming depleted and the surface area of the plate that in the flooded acid bath is not that large so it's not producing so much voltage and in turn amperage remember that a bat that everything electrical works on ohm's law volts times amps equals watts and that is James Watt discovered that's uh, or came up with that equation so volt times amps equals watts so basically um, if you were to figure something out the volts times amps is the watts it needs to run it and if the amperage is low the voltage is going to have to be higher to get to the same point or vice versa so a sulfated cell will give you a weak battery under temperature extremes and or if the engine is hard to start will not give you the cranking capacity it will it'll crank only maybe for three seconds instead of 30 seconds and that's a battery that's on its way out it's uh, sulfated inside and depleted cells and needs to be replaced the broken battery is like a broken light bulb filament it happens all of a sudden so for this particular reason you need to to look at all of your batteries and your equipment and you need at five or six years you need to replace it because there's no practical way for you to determine whether that bus bar that ties the cells together is uh, very thin and you could go and you could go into harvest and you could go into the field and hit a slight bump in the f going into the field do nothing just a vibration of the combine going down the road or the tractor pulling the grain cart or a truck what have you and uh, that bus bar breaks and you shut that piece of equipment off and it's completely dead where it is now keep in mind also and uh, this is preaching to the choir that there is internal differences between a rough service and agricultural type of battery and an automotive type of battery and that has to do with the the thickness of the bus bar the way the cells are put in there uh, how they're attached and what have you so an agricultural battery internally forgetting about the actual size which is called the group the actual fit footprint of it the way it goes into the tray and what have you um, is is heavier duty inside to take the shock and the vibration and that's really what it's about so a an automotive style battery is designed to take vibration but not to the extent that an agricultural and or a construction or heavy duty type of battery is that everything all of its moorings inside and its materials are thicker but it's still made the same way it's still a flood a, a flooded acid battery it still has a bus bar it still works the same way 2.2 volts per cell so uh that is something to keep in mind so as i said to recap uh battery age is is paramount um if you're listening to this you know shortly after i've recorded in august you'll probably be getting ready to go into harvest and you'd want to look at the age of your batteries and all your equipment and also look at the um, connections on them make sure that they're clean and not and not corroded whatsoever because then there'll be a voltage drop through there and also keep in mind that you know lots of times when you buy an aftermarket replacement battery and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with them or uh, whatsoever but when you buy an aftermarket replacement battery they put the vents for the cells in a uh, usually in a different place than the factory battery was and if you have a piece of equipment that it's always dirtying up the terminals 
uh, getting uh, you know the acid buildup, the whitish yellow acid buildup corrosion on the battery cables where it connects to the terminal battery. That's usually a vent issue that the vent is in the wrong place for that application. The battery physically fits and what the aftermarket basically does is that they usually make one case and vent it in the same place and just change where the terminals go and if the vent happens to be right by the terminal when the battery is being charged from the alternator it puts out a gas. It's called gassing and the vent is there to let the gas out so the battery doesn't explode and if the terminal where you connect to with the cable is right by the vent it accumulates all of that acid and that's why that uh, that all builds up there and corrodes everything and ends up eating away actually the bolt that holds the terminal on uh, years ago back in the 1970s General Motors came out with the side terminal battery and the side terminal battery would never corrode its terminals and you could say well that hot rod farm is full of it because you know I had an old GM pickup truck or car or whatever and it, the side terminals always got corroded yes it did and you want to know why because you did not put a Delco battery in it the Delco battery had the vents designed on the other side away from the terminals and it was impossible for it to get corrosion from the vents because they were 180 degrees their exact opposite side if you put an aftermarket replacement battery back then all they did was move the terminals to the side and the old vents were there and then as the uh, battery would gas the terminals would, would become corroded so that is what we need to understand so whenever you have a lot of corrosion or a battery that uh, has a propensity to make corrosion it's usually a vent issue uh, vent in the wrong spot and if it's not vented in the wrong spot then that's a very good indicator of the alternator overcharging and all you need to do is put a voltmeter across it and most modern electrical systems charge around 14.2 to 14.7 volts uh, you could say 14.8 so if it's charging 15.1, 15.2, 15.3 then it's overcharging and there's excessive gassing going on in the battery and over time you will actually uh, take out all the electrolyte from the overcharging and historically that's usually a voltage regulator issue uh, where it's it's overcharging it's not sensing the proper voltage alrighty so keep in mind that you don't want to have sudden that sudden death syndrome is not just for batteries I mean not just for soybeans excuse me alrighty now we're gonna get to our uh, special delivery segment and this is from Bruce uh, in Mississippi it says we have a 454 Chevy engine on an irrigation pump for a center pivot it is a late 1980s version with a four barrel carburetor it runs well but it used to run better it seems that the carburetor does not adjust like it used to and is beginning to leak oil from the rear main seal due to this last winter we pulled off the pump and brought it to the shop I guess he pulled off the engine from the pump and brought it to the shop to put a new rear seal and rebuild the carb it runs a little better but the oil still leaks just less any ideas about the carb and oil leaks thanks for your time and this is as I said Bruce from Mississippi well thanks so much for uh, contacting me Bruce and I have a couple of ideas on it uh, first of all 
I mean, you say it doesn't run as uh, like it used to. I really don't know what that means. Um, I'm not being I'm not being a wise guy, because you could say maybe it doesn't run as smooth or it uses more fuel or what have you. But I think I have a pretty good idea of what's going on there. And most of you listening to this are gonna be shaking your head, saying I don't know what I'm talking about. But anyway, I think it has the wrong PCV valve in it and or a defective PCV valve. A P- PCV stands for positive crankcase ventilation. And every engine builds crankcase pressure because this pressure goes past the rings into the oil pan and then also the movement of the pistons up and down in the uh, block creates a, creates pressure in the oil pan. And uh, for an engine to run properly, it needs to be vented. And with the PCV system, what it does is that it allows that pressure to come out and those fumes to come out. And if those fumes do not come out and the moisture from the condensation uh, that create that's created in the oil from the engine being shut off and cooled down and heated up again will actually mix with the oil and create acid. Now, the hallmark of a PCV valve with the wrong flow rate is a carburetor does not want to adjust properly when everything else is right with it, so we have to assume that, and uh, persistent oil leaks in the engine and a smell of oil. Since you already put a rear main seal in, and we're going to assume that that was all done properly, and you went through the carburetor and it still is leaking oil and doesn't seem to run right, that I feel it has the wrong PCV valve on it. And the flow rate and the transition of that PC valve, PCV valve is incorrect for the, di- the, the um, pressure dynamics in that oil pan. What basically happens is the PCV valve is a very, very intricate and um, intricate and highly designed part. And when you, as an engine gets older and you go into town to the auto parts store and you buy a PCV valve, it's like pantyhose. It's one size fits all. All they do is the aftermarket companies is change the actual, what we would call an engineering the envelope, and they keep the same internal spring and, and ball and seat in there. And the flow rate is the flow rate, and that's basically it. When an OE, when the original equipment manufacturer designs a PCV valve, they design it for the flow rate and transition for that particular engine. So, and if you, many carburetors on older pieces of equipment, cars, trucks, whatever, were replaced and to no avail because of a wrong PCV valve. Not a defective one, but the wrong flow rate. It could be brand new. So, what I would suggest that you do is take the PCV valve out of the valve cover, on Chevy motor it should be in the valve cover, take the PCV valve out of the valve cover and then pull the PCV valve out and then block that hose temporarily and then open up the breather caps on the valve cover and then see if the engine carburetor adjusts better and then if that does that's a very good indication. It won't be 100% but it'd be a good indication of that and there is a company you could look them up on the internet called M.E. Wagner Performance and they make it a, an adjustable flow rate PCV valve and it's very simple to adjust with a vacuum gauge and they give you uh, give you instructions on that and it's a it's a beautiful beautiful PCV valve it was actually made for the hot rod industry because they have the same the same problems with not getting the proper PCV valve on a modified engine or an older muscle car but they've also had a lot of applications people use it in stationary engines and trucks uh, and what have you because it's adjustable it doesn't know where it, it uh, what it's on.
and it is a little bit pricey but it's beautifully made in the usa and it's a, it's a little bit pricey it's around 119 dollars but my contention is that if you spend 119 dollars on that engine fix the oil leak and get it to run right that was money well well uh well spent so that's what i would look you could look them up on the internet it's me wagner performance and i think and it's we'll look up adjustable pcv valve and i think that'll take care of 99 percent of your problems the next letter i have is um i have a 1998 ford f-150 that has been retired to ranch use it has almost 500,000 miles with a 302 v8 and overdrive automatic about six months ago, I was checking cattle and hit a bump in the pasture, and the truck stalled and would not start. That's not good, right? We towed it back to the shop and found that it has no fuel. If I spray carb cleaner in the air filter, it runs for a second. We left the truck and did nothing more, but now I would like to get it to run for the winter. I thought it was the fuel pump, but after replacing that, it, it was the original, uh, still no fuel. If you can steer me in the right direction, I would be thankful. Bob from Montana. Well, uh, I think I could steer you. I think I, uh, with this one, I could be a hero. Uh, I believe what happened is that many fuel-injected Fords, and I don't know if it's still true today with 2018s, but in that era from the uh, when they went to fuel injection in the 1980s all the way up into the, probably into the 2000s, they would have what was what is called an inertia switch. And what the inertia switch would be, it would be wired in between the ECU, which turned the fuel pump on in the relay, and the fuel pump itself. And in case the vehicle got into an accident or rolled over, it's the inertia switch would pop and open up the circuit and not allow voltage to be supplied to the fuel pump. The inertia switch is resettable. There's a button on it. It pops like a circuit breaker, and all you do is put the... Uh, put the button back in and everything would be fine The thing is that you'd need to find it in pickup trucks. Usually it was in the kick panel uh, But if you uh, you could look up uh, look it up in uh, in your owner's manual if you still have it and find that where the inertia switches uh, As an aside to this with every fuel injected vehicle as soon as you turn the key on not to crank But to on so the idiot lights come on the fuel pump will run and prime for two seconds If it doesn't see a tax signal meaning that the engine is cranking that's to charge the fuel rail So this is whether it's a UTV or whether it's a pickup truck car or whatever you whatever it is I keep replacing you know saying all of this because I don't want you to think it's just it's just application specific to uh, to one type of uh, equipment and if you don't hear that fuel pump run then what you need to do is not to, not to go and replace the fuel pump granted with a half a million miles your money really wasn't wasted but uh was probably at the end of its uh, life cycle but you need to go back to the fuel pump if you don't hear the pump run you need to go with a test light and see whether you're getting fuel to the pump during the that's called a prime pulse and and after the prime pulse, you'd have to crank the engine. Once you crank the engine, it sees a tax signal that you will be able to, uh, it'll send f power voltage to the pump. So based upon the fact that you were in the, on a ranch, you hit a bad bump, the vehicle shut off, the engine shut off, uh, you put a new fuel pump in, you still have no fuel, I would say that there's a very, very, very good chance that all it did was pop the inertia switch. If you find that inertia switch and reset it, 
press the button in. It's like a, it's got a little button on the top that pops. You press it in, and then it should. You turn the key on. You should hear the fuel pump run, and it should be running for another half a million miles, and you could take care of your cattle. So listen, thank you so much for listening today. You have a blessed day, and know that the hot rod farmer is pulling for America and all her farmers and ranchers. See you next time. Thank you.